From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker, and joining me this week is Lindsay McPherson, who covers budget and appropriations for CQ Roll Call. Thanks for being here, Lindsay. Great to be with you, David. And pinch me, but we actually have a spending package for the fiscal year that is now almost half over. It comes more than five months late, but the Senate on Thursday night actually cleared this package, providing $1.5 trillion for the fiscal year, which began last October. It's hopelessly late, but it's here. They got it through. It's finally at the finish line. President Biden is sure to sign it. Uh, It's been an ordeal, but we want to talk about that, how it got done, what it means going forward. Uh, We have a lot to chew on, Lindsay. So let's start with how did this happen and, and how did they finally clear all the roadblocks away? You were there late into the wee hours. The real breakthrough started a few weeks ago when they announced they had a framework agreement um, on the top line numbers and an agreement that resolved a longstanding dispute they had been arguing about for months over policy riders. And we saw that play out as they negotiated the rest of the bill and what they released this week is that on the policy riders that Republicans had pushed for no additional partisan riders to be added because Democrats wanted to add some new things this year and they wanted to maintain all the what they call the legacy riders, things that have been the bills year after year, particularly the Hyde Amendment, which bars federal funding for abortion in most cases. And so that um, Republican demand was met. And another big demand that was met that was key to the breakthrough was Republicans wanted parity, basically equal increases in defense and non-defense spending. And they got very close to that in this final deal, certainly enough that Republicans felt comfortable. And it was a big deal because they limited the amount of non-defense spending increases, or the non-defense spending increase that Democrats had wanted was, you know, less than half the amount they wanted. In terms yeah. Of and that, that was, that was really the, the thing, the, the most dramatic thing for me, I think is, is we have to remember this thing had been stalled for months and months over this basic tension between the parties over how much how much to increase defense spending versus non-defense spending. That's really the thing that held them up for so long. And Democrats, you know, this was their first year with a Democratic president after the Trump administration. They were so eager to boost non-defense spending. They were saying that healthcare and education had been environment had been neglected for so many years. It was time here with Democrats in control of both houses of Congress and the White House to really boost spending. Biden came in proposing a 16% increase in non-defense spending. He actually proposed this a year ago now. We're so late. We're so late in the game. Um, They were gung-ho for that. and, And Biden was trying to really just freeze defense spending, essentially, when you adjust for inflation. So there was a huge mismatch between the defense and non-defense accounts, and Republicans said, no way, we want equal increases between defense and non-defense. And that's what stymied them for months and months. And Lindsay, I think it's fair to say Republicans really got their way on this. I mean, 
I mean, Democrats really had to cave to get this bipartisan deal together. What we ended up with is a package of roughly equal increases between defense and non-defense. Democrats had to come way down on non-defense spending. You know, they wanted as much as a 16% boost. What they got was about a 6.7% boost. And then they had to come way up on defense, a, a good a, a good bit up on defense. They got almost 6% increase for defense. I mean, Republicans really did get what they were after there. Yeah, for, definitely for the most part. It's certainly not perfect parity. You know, as you just mentioned, the percentages, those aren't exactly equal. There was a slightly higher percentage increase, as well as a slightly higher dollar increase for non-defense. So Democrats can, you know, kind of muscle out a little bit of a messaging victory in that regard. But for the most part, certainly Republicans got the better end of the bargain here, um, both on that and the riders, which were a big deal for them. And basically, they're those were their main conditions for even sitting down to agree to a deal. And that happened. And there was a big breakthrough, obviously, after that framework agreement. But it still took them weeks to negotiate this because those are just very basic, simple things. Once you get into all the details of the bill, it takes a lot of time. So we're, they were running up against the deadline. And then we had this wrench thrown in with the last minute request last week from the White House for supplemental funding for Ukraine and the COVID-19 pandemic, ongoing needs for that. So that also made it difficult to get the deal done on time. And they were negotiating into this week on those amounts. The Ukraine aid, the White House request was $10 billion. It kept ticking up. I think by Monday, they were up to 12 By Tuesday, they were up to nearly $14 billion. The amount that it ended up in the deal, you know, a little close to that was, I think, $13.6 billion. And then on the COVID-19 aid, that was definitely one of the things that was open until the very last minute, late Wednesday night, when they're nailing down the final details and getting the text that didn't come till like, 1.30 in the morning. Yes, uh, I remember. I was <laughs> up. <laughs> and and let's talk, Lindsay, about the COVID-19. Yeah, Tuesday night. Sorry. Yeah, and let's let's just talk a little about the COVID nineteen aid because that's something that fell apart here and is not in the bill, and they're going to have to come back to starting next week. Um, the White House had requested over twenty two billion dollars in new COVID aid, uh, basically for vaccines and therapeutics and some overseas aid. Um, they trimmed it down a little to about $15.5 billion, and they were hoping it was going to be in this bill. But, you know, Republicans resisted it all along, saying there's so much unspent pandemic relief. Why can't we tap some of that money for the vaccines? Why do we have to spend new money? And that was the basic tension. And Republicans were not willing to back this unless this COVID aid were offset with with other cuts. And boy, that blew up in the face of House leaders this week. Uh, you know how that went. I mean, that was kind of ugly. Uh, you were tracking all these, all these Democrats, mostly from the Midwest, I think, who were just up in arms because they were proposing to cut some of the aid to state governments, right? Right. So what happened basically is after that bill was filed, um, at 1.30 in the morning, all the members woke up to find out what the details were. Because mind you, this is all happening behind closed doors. The top right. appropriators and leadership are the only ones who really know all these details. Um, and so when the bill drops, it's, it's 
a big surprise to people. And in particular, members were really surprised to see that the offsets for the COVID aid, $7 billion, which was from the state funds that were appropriated in last year's um, American Rescue Plan. And so the, their basic frustration is that the state aid went out in two tranches. The initial tranche that was delivered last year, some states got everything, states with particularly high employment from the beginning yeah, of the high period. unemployment, right. Right. So that they got all their money in one fell swoop because the thinking was, well, they need need it more yeah. um, immediately. And then other states were set to get it in two tranches. The first, which was delivered last year, and the second, which is supposed to come a year later um, in the coming months. And so that money is still parked in Treasury because it hasn't gone out yet. Republicans are viewing that as unspent money. But, you know, Democrats, and not all Republicans, but... Democrats, for the most part, are saying, no, that's not unspent. We already promised this to the states. A lot of these states, we're talking like Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Florida. Um, so those are like some of the lawmakers complaining. But a lot of those states have already budgeted for getting that money here in a couple of months. And we're planning on it. So I, $7 billion, you know, is kind of a drop of in the bucket in overall. But when you think about like, but that's real money to a lot of states. Exactly. I mean, when you think about things they've already budgeted for, like yeah. millions of dollars being cut from each state, it does matter. And these lawmakers were particularly upset because they felt like, one, it wasn't fair because all the other states who already got all their money in one tranche weren't going to be affected. But two, like this, you know, we, we promised our states this money. We don't want to deliver it. So basically there was a long day of negotiations Wednesday and ultimately, House Democratic leadership decided to strip that offset. Well, first of all, they just decided to strip all the COVID money out of the omnibus and put it into a separate standalone bill. And then they planned to bring that standalone bill to the floor that night, along with omnibus for a vote. And they, in that standalone bill, they stripped the $7 billion clawback of the state funds and left it only half, nearly half offset, um, or a little over more than half offset. And that's the bill they're going to try to do next week now. But. Right, exactly. But to go, they went through all this exercise, and uh, in part, a large part, after they made the decision to strip the state and local aid, uh, there's still hours to delay getting the standalone bill ready, only for them to get to the floor later than that night and be like, oh, never mind, we'll, we'll get to it next week. So it was just a big, dramatic day. And I, all this stems from the fact that the House has a very narrow majority, basically a four-seat cushion, um, between de- Democrats to pass something, and there were a- at least a dozen Democrats up in arms over this, and they were threatening to tank the rule on the omnibus, and the rule sets up to be, but it's, you know, you can't, if you don't adopt the rule, you can't get to the bill, so it was... They, were they, using, had, a, they had a real rebellion on their hands. Yeah, and they it were was, using their leverage, and this has happened previously, we've talked about it on this podcast, and, and our stories on the infrastructure bill, um, and other matters, I mean, Democrats are really using their leverage in this narrow majority and leadership is having to go back and revisit things at the last minute and has had a few chaotic, chaotic days like this. But this one was, you know, given that they were already on a time crunch, you know, government funding expires Friday was really pushing it. But it, it did work out in the end. And we can talk about, you know, how things played out in the Senate. <laughs> yes. 
yesterday. Right, but just to, just to wrap up on on this COVID relief, I mean, they're going to tr- the House is going to try to take it up next week, but with but without this seven billion dollars in state aid being cut, which means half of this COVID aid package will be deficit financed, uh, and that's not going to sit well with Republicans. And so maybe they can pass it on a party line vote in the House, but it's it's doesn't sound like it's going to get very far in the evenly divided Senate where you need bipartisan support. Uh, it seems like they're going to have a dilemma in how to get additional COVID relief uh, funded here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not 100% convinced that they don't try to renegotiate now that they have more time um, with Republicans to get it to a place that Republicans can support it rather than sending a bill over to the Senate that they know is not going to pass the Senate. They may Um, need to renegotiate. Right. So, but as of now, that is the way the bill is written is it's not fully paid for. And Republicans have said that's going to be a problem um, both in the house and Senate, but they can pass it in the house without Republican support. But you know, they, they might decide when they get back next week, let's, see if we can work out something before we send that bill over so we're not wasting time ping-ponging back and forth when the administration has referred to these COVID needs as immediate. They say there's money running out on testing supplies this month and on some other things in the coming months. So they they can't wait forever to get this done. Um, they'll have to figure something out, but that's a conversation for next week. So we're going to see how that plays out. It, that is going to be a dilemma for them. And we should say also about this omnibus package, you know, this is the first time in uh, roughly a decade that we have spending earmarks back in in the bill, Uh, you know, funding for lawmakers' pet projects back home that they were able to insert. There was a ban on earmarks for over 10 years because it had led to corruption or concerns about corruption. So a few lawmakers went to jail over it. It led to bribes and that kind of stuff. They are. This is a big experiment this year, and they did allow the earmarks to, to be used again this time. Uh, they're in the bill. They amount to billions of dollars, hundreds of projects. Uh, kind of a big deal. We're going to see what kind of reaction people have to it. Uh, there's still more work to be done to analyze exactly who got what, but both parties did participate. Obviously, Democrats got more money than Republicans because they're in the majority, and some of the Republicans were unwilling to play along on the earmarks game, but both parties did partake in them. Kind of an interesting thing, and we're going to have to see what people make of it and whether there's any allegations here of misuse. They They do say that in bringing back the earmarks, uh, they've inserted new safeguards this time, and there's more. They're more transparent. They have to be disclosed ahead of time uh, to alert for possible conflicts of interest. They think that guards against corruption, but we'll see. Yeah, they've had all their requests posted for months on end online, so anyone can look those up and see if there's an issue. And I think it's definitely been more transparent than the previous process. So we'll. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out once, you know, people find out what was approved and maybe dig into it a little more. But on this face, like the projects I've looked at, you know, they look, you know, like standard transportation, water projects, you know. 
the, and you see, and you see the influence of senior appropriators, right? Because one, I think one of the biggest earmarks uh, was for a hundred million dollars that went to Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, who is the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Surprise, surprise, got a big fat earmark in there for uh, the uh, Mobile Alabama Airport. Um, and that, that shows you the influence you can have when you hold a senior position. And that, that, that has part of what had led to some, some of the disgruntlement over earmarks. But the flip side of it was that if enough lawmakers get an earmark, there's more buy-in to the process and it can make these contentious spending bills easier to pass because more people have a stake in them with a little more piece of the pie. And so you spread that around a little bit and, and uh, there's less resistance and you can pass these spending bills um, maybe a little bit easier. I don't know. This still took half a, half a year to get done. <laughs> well, I, I saw a lot of press releases, you know, that go out after these omnibus votes and usually they're about, like the actual domestic and defense funding like needs overall since there haven't been earmarks in a while, but this year there's so many that just led with the earmarks and it was impressive. Like it meant a lot to the members in that sense. And I think it did help certainly ease passage. Um, But I would say, you know, since we talked at the beginning about Republicans getting a lot out of the steel, this, even though this, there are earmarks in here for Republicans, this was a big deal to Democrats. They were the ones leading the charge to bring this back. And I think, like you mentioned, they got more of them because there are some Republicans who abstained from participating because they dislike earmarks. So, you know, the Democrats were always willing for it to be even. There just weren't as many requests from Republicans, but there were some big ones. You talked about Shelby. You know, the funny thing is he told me, he's like, I got less than majority leader Chuck Schumer, but I've got some significant ones. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, he seemed pretty happy with that yesterday. And you're right. This was a Democratic initiative to bring back the earmarks. So that I suppose that is a victory for Democrats that um, if, if you support earmarks, they're back. So um, Democrats can, can tip their hat on that one. Um, but on the policy writers, as you mentioned earlier, Lindsay, uh, Democrats did not get what they want, particularly, we should say, on this Hyde Amendment. You know, it's been 40 years we've had this Hyde Amendment that prohibits federal funding for abortions with limited exceptions. And Democrats were so eager this year with complete control of government to lift that restriction. This was the year they really made a play to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, and they and they just couldn't do it. Republicans were adamant that they wanted to keep it, and Republicans won. Uh, that was another big victory on the Republican side. These policy writers aren't changing very quickly. Uh, they they had to do this in order to get a bipartisan deal. I mean, they had to, and they knew they had to. They would have needed a supermajority in the Senate, you know, at least 60 votes to make that happen. Right. And it is what it is. Everyone knew this would be the end result. There was no other way. Republicans were very adamant about it. They were willing to go to a year-long CR to bat over this issue because that's how important anti-abortion policy is to Republicans. It's just a key tenet, and it's not all Republicans in the Senate. It's a 50-50 split Senate. Joe Manchin supports Hyde. I mean, it's they were just so far from having the votes to make it happen that to drag it out 
nearly halfway into the fiscal year over an issue they knew they weren't going to win. It's baffling. It's baffling. And we should we should note that there was this issue that both parties actually did agree on and attached to this bill is all of this extra aid for Ukraine as it as it fights off this Russian invasion or tries to. I mean, this is billions of dollars in new military aid and humanitarian aid and economic aid for Ukraine and to help some of the NATO allies that border Ukraine to shore up their defenses. This is big. It was $13.6 billion. Both parties supported that. Um, I don't think there was any real controversy about that. And that is emergency funding. So that did not have to be offset with any spending cuts. That came on top of this $1.5 trillion pie. Um, but both parties can, I guess, take credit for the for the Ukraine piece. Right. I already talked about how that ticked up earlier, but I would say the only controversy about that is there were a bunch of Republicans who wanted to do it separately from the omnibus and had passed it sooner than yesterday when the omnibus passed. And there was um, even a last right. effort from Rick Scott to try to separate it out as well, because there were Republicans who would have liked to vote for that, that didn't vote for the omnibus. Um, you know, in fact, a good number, more than half the Republicans in the Senate didn't end up voting for the omnibus. So, and because it was combined, they, they also in effect ended up voting against that Ukraine aid. Although there would, if it had been a standalone vote, there would have been a lot more Republican support. So. And Republicans did fault the Democrats for, for putting it in the omnibus. They said, why can't we just pass it immediately? It's so urgent and do a separate bill on the Ukraine aid and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's response was, this is actually the fastest way to get the Ukraine aid approved, because if he put a separate bill on the floor, it could easily uh, get derailed or get held up. It would only take one senator to object, and and you could have endless fights because of the bogged down Senate procedure. So he claimed this was the easiest, quickest way to get it passed. But there was a little partisan tension there over procedure but not on the aid itself. Uh, and that is now heading to uh, Biden for his signature. A big deal uh, in, this, in this Ukraine saga. And so this package is done finally, but we should note that any day now, uh, President Biden will be releasing his budget for the coming fiscal year. Uh, so we don't get much of a break. We will be on that quickly to see for fiscal 2023 what he is requesting and all the money that, you know, he has a, he still has a huge domestic agenda that he wasn't able to pass, the so-called Build Back Better agenda that hasn't gone anywhere. It's now stalled. Can any of that be in his new budget request? We will see. Stay with us. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Lindsay, for being here. Thanks, David, for having me. And we will see you all next week. 